you know, I'm doing this no shave November thing, and uh, my wife has told me, I, I kind of like it, so that's a good, that's a good sign, but uh, this morning my family came to the early service, they usually come to this service, and I got up to do the prayer, and when I got down, my daughter said to me, you know, you kind of look like the ca- somebody from the cast of The Revenant, and uh, I don't think that was a compliment, so um, for, the, for the parents who are here, you know, young parents, like the ones who did the dedication, one of the blessings of parenthood is humility is taken care of. I mean, your, your kids make sure you stay humble. Now, y'all turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. And I'll, I'll just say it right off the top. The subject that I'm talking about today is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. It's going to be a little awkward to talk about um, because I'm talking about sex and marriage. And uh, when it comes to that topic, especially that first topic, um, we have kind of an interesting relationship with that as Americans, as contemporary Americans. Because on, on the one hand, we sort of act like Victorian prudes who, sh- who blush at the mention of this topic. On the other hand, we're sort of like perpetual 13-year-old boys who are fascinated with it in an unhealthy way and giggle and wink and nudge each other when it comes up. And, and so as a pastor, I have to walk the line of, of being faithful to God's Word and talking about this in a frank way so that we address real issues at the same time not, uh, not offending, not distracting Um, I also know that there are children in the room, which I'm very grateful for. And as a parent, I know, although my kids are older now, I know that as a parent, you don't want your kids to be exposed to certain topics too early. So I promise you as moms and dads, I'm not going to be PG-13 or anything like that. I'm not going to say anything graphic. Um, Hopefully, I won't put you in a position where you'll have to have a conversation with your child that you're not ready for. I will say this, though, if you do, um, as a parent, I've learned that sometimes when you're not ready for those conversations, it works out pretty well, and God sort of engineers that well. Also, if you're offended as a parent, if you need some advice, if you need some, you know, Alan Armstrong is our parenting guru, so just give him a call, and uh, he'll walk you right through it. Um, He's got a hotline he can help you with. You know, the truth is the Bible on this topic is extremely frank. You might know that if, if you read through the Scriptures Uh, From end to end, if you've never done it before, you'll be surprised at how frank the Bible is on this topic. In fact, there are some passages that in an American context, I I, I just know I'll never be able to preach on. I will never preach on Ezekiel 23. I'll never preach on most of the Song of Solomon. It just, you know, the... Y'all can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. It's just, it's too... It's... the, the, tr- the Bible was written in a more earthy time when people talked about these things more frankly than they do in our culture. But on the other hand, the truth that, that we're going to look at today is powerful, and it's going to affect specifically two groups in this room, and we'll get to those two groups at the end. Now, we're in a series called The Man Who Changed Everything. We're talking about the impact Jesus made in this world. How even if you're not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, not religious at all, his life has influenced your life more than any other single life that's ever lived. And we've looked at how he influenced different fields of endeavor throughout history. Today we're going to look at how he influenced the way we think about sex and marriage. Which is ironic when you think about it, since Jesus was never married, he lived his entire life as a celibate single man, and yet he changed the way we think about those topics. Um, And and just as one example uh, of evidence, in 
in our America of today, which is becoming increasingly secular, uh, increasingly irreligious, where most people don't go to church on a regular basis, still to this day, most people get married in a church, taking vows in the name of Jesus, a man who was never married. Now, how did that happen? We're going to look at that today. So let's take a look, first of all, at this story, very famous story. We're going to look at the beginning of the story, and then we'll, we'll end it up toward the end of the message. But verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, there's three people in this story. There's Jesus, and then there's this woman. She's not named in Luke's account. He, do, he instead just calls her a sinful woman. Now, we know that there's all manner of sins, but in this context, in this culture, specifically a woman referred to in that way, we can infer, we can strongly infer that she had committed some sexual sin. She perhaps was a prostitute. Maybe she had had an affair. Or maybe she simply was someone who was married more than once. In that culture, that was scandalous enough. She brought into the room, and by the way, the fact that she shows up uninvited to a dinner party, today we'd call the cops. In those days, that was normal. Hospitality was such a huge value in that culture that for Simon, this Pharisee, he was proud to have someone show up uninvited. That showed the whole rest of the community, look how hospitable I am. I open my doors to the whole community. I'm having this rabbi here for dinner, but it's okay that she's here. But she brings into it this bottle, this alabaster jar of perfume. One of the other gospels says that it was made of pure nard. It was very, very valuable. may have been the most uh, expensive thing this woman owned. And in order to pour it out, y'all may have heard of this, you can't, there's not a screw on top or even a cork. It, you have to break the neck of the bottle to pour it out. So obviously, once you open it, it can't be reused. So she is pouring out the best that she has on Jesus. She has heard, obviously, this is a man who is a forgiving person. This is a man who loves all people, and she wants to worship him. So the third character in the story is the Pharisee, Simon, and Simon, his motive at first is a, is a very commendable one. He wants to have Jesus over for dinner. Why? Because he wants to know, who is this guy? What is he all about? Everybody's talking about him. They're saying he might be the Messiah. I want to evaluate for myself. If you're not a believer in Jesus here today, let me tell you, follow that example. Find out who Jesus is. Make your own decision about him. That's great. That is what we all should do. But his attitude toward this woman, I mean, he makes up his mind within the first 30 seconds of seeing this woman because he knows her. She's from that community. He knows what sin she has committed. He identifies her by that sin. And the fact that Jesus allows this woman to touch him, he says to himself, if he were a prophet, he would know without being told that this is a sinner and he would stand up and recoil. He would cast her out. But the fact that he didn't tells me he's not a prophet. Ergo, he is not the Messiah. And he's, he's exemplifying an attitude that we see a lot in the world, especially among religious people, which is there are many sins, but sexual sin is different. 
There are many ways to go against God's commands to, st to stain yourself, but sexual sin bears a special kind of stain that can't be washed off. And even today, a lot of religious people feel that way. Maybe even many of us in this room. And you wouldn't say it that way. You would say, oh, anybody can be forgiven. But in your mind, in your mind, you look at them differently if they've committed that kind of sin. Religious people haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. Now, in the larger culture that Jesus lived in, it was very different. Jesus lived among Jews, but in the wider culture that was Greek and Roman, the, the sexual ethic was quite different than it was among Jews. It was very, very live and let live. Do what you want. Follow your body wherever it leads. There was a, a man who wrote, a, a writer, famous writer in those days, who wrote this sentence. He said, we have mistresses for our enjoyment, concubines for our daily needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children. Sounds like a, a world that a lot of men would have created for themselves, which it exactly was. I know that we, um, we look on the Romans of those days as being very civilized and enlightened. That's probably because when we watch movies about those times, the Romans always speak in a British accent, and British people are all civilized, of course. And so we just assume, oh, they were really smart. They were really enlightened people. So it will probably surprise many of you to learn that in that culture, pedophilia was seen as perfectly acceptable. If that's what you wanted to do, fine. You can only imagine how many lives of children were damaged because of that. You read the myths of the Roman and Greek gods of those times. They, they're startling in their contrast to the God of Israel that you read about in the Old Testament, the Torah. The, the Greek and Roman gods were, well, they were like, they, they, were, they were totally unrestrained. They had illicit affairs among gods and goddesses. They, they, uh, they had union with human women and produced hybrid children. Hercules is one example. Frankly, when you read the Greek and Roman myths, sometimes it's hard to tell whether you're reading about Zeus or the Rolling Stones. It's just crazy. And yet, our culture today is a lot more Greek than it is Jewish when it comes to sexual ethics, isn't it? We're, we're a pretty live-and-let-live culture. I mean, if, if you were a time traveler from another time and you came to America in 2016 and you, you found out that, well, okay, most of their songs, especially pop and country songs, most of their songs are about sex. Most of their stories, I mean, go into a, a, a gas station and buy a novel off the rack. What's it about? It's the subject of most of their advertising I mean, we, we sell tires with sex. If you were from another dimension, you would think, well, this, this country, this, this culture, that's what they worship. That's the highest value they have. Fifty years ago, we had what was called the sexual revolution. Of course, nobody declared war, but we all know what it's about. We were told in the 1960s that... What we needed for the sake of men and women everywhere, for the sake of happiness, for the sake of families, was to throw off the old moral standards, to, to get rid of all the repression and just follow biology. What consenting adults do on their own is nobody else's business. And if you just get over these repressive morals, everybody will be better off. Now, I don't want to stand here and, and act like I'm superior, but let's be honest. Let's just Look, in a, look objectively at our culture and ask the question, 50 years after the sexual revolution, are we really happier? Are marriages in general 
lasting longer? Is there more or less divorce now than there was then? Are there more or less unwanted children? Are children treated better? Is there more or less abuse, molestation? How about relationships between men and women? I mean, now that we're free, is there more or less um, harassment in the workplace? Ill treatment behind closed doors? Sexual assault and other crimes. Is there, has that increased or decreased? To put it another way, Andy Stanley, uh, who preaches in Atlanta, had a woman come talk to him one time. She said, I've been visiting your church. Now, Andy Stanley's church is well known because uh, it, it attracts a lot of unbelievers. A lot of non-church people feel comfortable there that wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable in other churches. And this woman was one of them. And she said, listen, I've heard what you've said about sex. And he, she said, don't you think that's unrealistic? I mean, don't you think that doesn't really make any sense? And he said, let me answer your question with another question. Has sex outside of marriage made your life better or just more complicated? That's a very good question, isn't it, that a lot of people need to ask themselves. Now, whenever you talk about this subject, people will often bring up, well, you know, Jesus never talked about these things. Jesus never talked about premarital sex. He never talked about homosexuality. Why does the church keep talking about it? Jesus didn't talk about those things in the Gospels because he didn't have to. Jesus did his entire ministry within the tiny little nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel was governed, if not politically, certainly emotionally and, and, and in a day-to-day way, by the Torah, what we call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has a crystal clear sexual ethic. In other words, if you were a Jew living in Israel there were no questions about what was right and wrong in this area. There was, no, there was no debating. Nobody ever went up to Jesus or any of the other rabbis and said, hey, I, I want to sleep with my girlfriend. Is that okay? They knew what the Scriptures said. Whereas when you get into the, the apostles' writings, the letters of the New Testament, the later part of the, of the Bible, you see these topics come up a lot more. You know why? Because at that point, the gospel had gotten outside of Israel. The apostles were taking Jesus' message all around the world into areas where they didn't have the Old Testament, where they weren't raised up with that kind of ethic. And so they were having to address these new issues, issues they never had to address when they were just among Jews. So let's just define it. Let's just say it out loud. What does the Bible say about sex? It's very clear, although there's a lot more that could be said. It's simple. It is simple as this. God created sex. He created it to be a wonderful gift. He created it to be a blessing and something not just to produce children, but something that produces incredible pleasure and joy, but only intended for one man and one woman within marriage, period. And anything outside of that isn't just not what God intended. Scripture tells us anything outside of that brings destruction. It brings heartache. It brings pain. It brings damage. God gave us this command not because he's trying to make life hard. He gave us this command because he wants us to be happy. He wants us to experience joy. He gave us this command because he loves us. That is the sexual ethic of Scripture. In fact, it it would surprise a lot of people in this world to know that the Bible celebrates sex more than any pop song you can name. Because in pop music and movies and romance novels and in much of our discourse on this subject, it's obvious what we're talking about is a simple physical transaction between two people who have a temporary emotional response. Not much different than what happens 
in a barnyard. Sorry to be crude. Whereas when the Bible talks about sex, it uses a term that literally means to know. If you read the New Testament, if you read the uh, King James Version, in fact, you'll see it said that way. It'll say, Adam knew his wife, Eve. And it's not talking about discussing things over coffee. I mean, it's talking about they came together physically and they knew one another in ways that no other woman would ever know Adam and no other man would know Eve. And so they shared something unique, something beautiful, something that pointed to the love of God. The Bible holds this up as something wonderful that can bind a man and a woman together like nothing else can. And they can share a unique experience that no one else will ever know in quite the same way they do. Now, what about Jesus? Jesus grew up with the Torah. He was taught these things as a child. Did he follow the teachings? You know, if you know much about Jesus, through much of his ministry, he was taking what Jews believed and he was turning it on its head and saying, okay, you've heard this, but I'll tell you this is what's really true. Did he do that with Old Testament sexual ethic? No. In fact, Jesus not only endorsed the sexual ethic he was raised with, the sexual ethic we see in the Old Testament, he increased it. He doubled down. Let me show you a scripture, Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 28. Matthew 5, 27 through 28. He said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus takes one of the Ten Commandments and says, it's not good enough to just physically abstain from the act of adultery. I want you to be pure in your mind as well. I want you to be pure in the way that you look upon others. And, and people will say, oh, that's so restrictive. Do you know what Jesus is really doing here? Number one, this teaching is a gift to every woman alive. Because Jesus is saying to men, look at women with respect. Treat them as human beings who are equal to you, who are a brain and not just a body, who are not there just to physically gratify you. Respect them. This is my daughter. Her eyes are up here. Look at her the way I look at her. And by the way, notice, ladies, he doesn't say that it's incumbent upon you to make sure that we don't look at you inappropriately. He doesn't say, like other religions do, make sure you're wrapped up from head to toe and only your eyes are peeking out because otherwise these poor barbaric men can't help themselves. No, he is holding us as men responsible. And for us men who read this and say, well, I could never do that. Yes, you can. I'm not saying it's easy, especially in this culture. It's not, you're not going to get any help from the larger culture, but it can be done, and it is done often. Men could, in this room could stand up and testify, as I testify, that the more you obey this command of Jesus, the more free you are. The more free you are and the better your relationships with everybody you meet. It is a commandment of love. Now, having said all of that, Jesus endorsed this, this very restrictive sexual ethic and, in fact, took it further. So keeping that in mind and considering the, the, the character of this woman who is now in his presence, how would Jesus react to her? What would he say? Is he just sort of reeling her in so he can blast her? Is he going to throw her out of the house? Is he going to condemn her? Let's read the rest of the story. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. 
You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I want you to notice two things he doesn't say here. Number one, he doesn't say, there's nothing wrong with this woman's lifestyle. What's the big deal, Simon? You need to get over yourself. This woman is living out her own life. It's her body. She can do with it what she wants. So just lighten up. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says, this woman's sins are many. And I acknowledge that, but, but she's been forgiven. The second thing he doesn't say, he doesn't say, look at what she's done for me. Look at this expensive perfume she's poured out on me. Now that's how you earn forgiveness, buddy. He doesn't say that either because forgiveness can't be earned. The point he's making to Simon is, I'm glad you invited me over. Seeking to know me better is a good thing, but you don't worship me. You know why? Because you haven't been forgiven. This woman, on the other hand, her life has been transformed. For the first time, she sees hope that she can become someone new, that she can no longer be stained and, and filled with shame over her lifestyle, that, that she can be born again. That's why she loves me so much. That's why she worships me. Do you hear the theology there? We don't earn forgiveness by worshiping God. We worship God because we've been forgiven. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that he would lay down his life, that we might be set free. That's how it works. Now, I want to ask you a question. When Jesus says to this, wo this woman, your sins are forgiven, what does he really mean? I mean, surely, right, he does mean, okay, you can be in the family of God, but we'll always remember the things you did. I mean, we, we sure won't hold you up as an example because otherwise little girls in the congregation might look at you and say, well, I can do bad things too, right? That's what he means by forgiveness, right? He means, he means forgiveness but not forgetting, right? I know, I'm putting you in an uncomfortable position. No, that's not right. What Jesus means is literally this. What Jesus means is I look at this woman and I don't see what she did wrong. I see someone as righteous, as pure, as the most chaste person who has ever lived. And the way you respond to that internally tells you a lot about how much like Jesus you are. Because if, on the one hand, your response is, well, wait a second, then what reward is there for me for doing things right? If she gets off scot-free, then you're more like Simon. You want God to keep score the way you do. On the other hand, if in your heart of hearts, your thought is hallelujah, then you're inching towards Christ-likeness and keep up the good work. Now, after Jesus was gone, Jesus died on a cross, he rose the third day, he ascended into heaven, and his followers, filled with the Holy Spirit, lived out his teachings. They went out into this Greek and Roman world that was so permissive that makes our culture look restrictive by comparison 
And they lived out this commandment. They, they celebrated marriage, man and woman coming together and living together for, for a lifetime lovingly, raising up children to follow that same ethic. They celebrated men and women who chose to be single, who said, you know what, I could get married, but I'd rather serve God wholeheartedly, and since I might be killed serving God, I'll just, I'll just stay single. They celebrated that too. That was a valid choice. Either way, they, were, they had a biblical view of sex. And it brought them joy, and it shined like a light in that culture. Tim Keller has a quote that I love. He said, The ancients were generous with their bodies, but stingy with their money, whereas followers of Jesus were generous with their money, but stingy with their bodies. And it changed the world forever. You know, to this day, even in our increasingly cynical culture towards marriage, we still have this ideal in our heads, even secular people, that someday I'm going to meet someone who's going to be perfect for me, we're going to get married, and we're going to be faithful to one another for a lifetime. No little boy or girl grows up saying, hey, someday I'm going to be a swinger. <laughs> they all picture white picket fences and two, 2.5 kids and a husband or wife that they just adore until they grow old together. Where did that come from? It didn't come from the Greek and Roman world. It didn't come from popular culture. It came from the movement of Jesus Christ. Jesus changed things so much. After he was gone, one of his primary biographers, a generation later, Matthew, one of his disciples, as an old man, wrote the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And he starts this biography of Jesus in an unusual way for us. He starts with a genealogy. He says, okay, here's how Jesus came to be. And he goes down the list. He was the son of this man, who was the son of this man, and so forth. It's kind of boring stuff for us, but there's some, there's some real gold in there. What Matthew was doing, of course, was he was establishing Jesus' Jewishness and the fact that he descended from David. All of this was important to Jews because he couldn't have been the Messiah if he didn't. But to us, there's some really interesting names in that list. There are five women listed in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. You can go look it up and check me on this. Um, the five women are Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. And here's what all five have in common. By the way, by the way, I know this is uh, kind of delicate to say, but in that culture, women weren't usually in genealogies. They weren't listed because, frankly, 2,000 years ago, nobody cared who your mother was or your grandmother. They only cared who your father was. It was that paternalistic a culture. The only time you would ever have a woman's name in your genealogy is if you had some reason to be especially proud of that particular woman. Maybe she was the daughter of a king. But the five women in Jesus' genealogy, they're not daughters of kings. In fact, all five, what they have in common is all five has, have some hint of scandal about them. Now, two of the five, the scandal is sort of unearned. Um, Ruth is scandalous because she was a Moabite. She was a foreign person. And to the Jews, marrying outside of the race was, was, was not done. Um, for Mary, of course, we know she was an unwed mother. She was not married when she gave birth to Jesus. We also know that was because of the Holy Spirit, not because she did things out of order. But the other three women in that list, we'll get to them in a moment, they deserve the scandal, okay? Now, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But why, why would God, who inspired Matthew to write this book, why would God say, hey, make sure you list these five women? It's going to stand out to everyone. Why them? 
I think it's God's way of saying, here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to take people who the world throws away and make them my best servants. I'm here to, to, to take people who the world thinks are stained irreparably and remove their stain and make them holy and show the world what I can do. In Matthew 1, God is giving a message before Jesus is even born that's saying, here's what I'm here to do. I'm here to change lives, set people on a new trajectory, make people brand new. The whole reason why this woman adored Jesus in this story, because she knew that's what he was here to do. Now, what does all this have to do with us? You may be sitting there saying, well, okay, but um, does this affect me in any way? There's two groups of people I mentioned at the beginning, two groups of, the, of people in this room that especially need to respond today. One is highly religious people. Got any highly religious folks here? Don't raise your hand. Yeah, I bet we do. Here's the thing. If you've been a churchgoer for a long time, you need to ask yourself the question, do I look on people like the woman in this story the way Jesus did? or the way Simon did. Be honest. When I look upon them, do I think to myself, they're getting what they deserve? Or do I think to myself, I wish they knew Christ? When, when I see and hear stories about this on the news or I watch TV shows with this kind of content in it, does it make me, does it make me feel sort of, sort of indignant? a little bit superior, and a little glad that, that, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. I I've made good choices, and I, I'm glad of, of it. Or does it break your heart? Do you think to yourself, we need to take them the love of God so they can know the freedom that we now have? Who are you more like, Jesus or Simon? Because honestly, if most of us were like Jesus, you know what we'd see? We'd see people like this woman in our churches every Sunday. In fact, we wouldn't be able to keep them out. If more of us acted like Jesus in this story and less like Simon the Pharisee, we would be baptizing men and women just like this woman every Sunday because I guarantee you men and women like this are all around us and they wish they could change. They wish they could remove the stain. They wish they could have a new life. And right now they're not seeing it in us. So I've never seen this happen. I would love to see it happen. I've never seen a, a group of religious people admit before God, you know what, I'm judgmental. You know what, I have a superior, self-righteous attitude toward people who aren't like me, and I need repentance. And I'm not even asking for you to do it out loud. Although if that happened, I'd, I'd know revival was breaking out. But just be honest before God about it and say, Lord, I know that I have these kinds of thoughts. Just cleanse me and, and humble me and help me to look on people the way you do. That's, that's one person in this room. That's one group that needs to respond. The second group are people who are sitting here and, and kind of feeling a little embarrassed. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, I think I came on the wrong Sunday because I've, I know that I've gone over the line of what God wants me to do. I know that I've done things that are outside of his boundaries. And you feel a sense of shame. And maybe, maybe you've already experienced some of the negative consequences of those choices, and maybe you haven't yet. Maybe it's still fun and exciting, but the consequences are coming, I'll tell you. Either way, you're hearing this morning, and maybe the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, boy, I sure wish, sure wish I'd never gone down that road. 
Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Those three other women I talked about in Jesus' genealogy, let me tell you about them just real quickly. Tamar, the first one mentioned, she's famous because she, she seduced her father-in-law. Rahab is famous because she was a prostitute. Bathsheba is famous because she had an affair with the king and brought down an empire. In fact, her name's not even mentioned in the genealogy. She's listed as Uriah's wife. So why, why in the name of everything would God say, make sure and mention those three people? Because he's saying to us, he's saying to the whole world, those three are people I made who I love and I did something amazing with them. They made bad choices. I removed their stain. I set them on a new path. I made them new. And I can do the same thing with you. And I can do the same thing through you in the lives of others. All I need for you to do is to do what this woman did and just come to me. Just come to me saying, I need transformation. I need a God who loves me enough to set me on a new path. And he will. He has never failed to do that once. Hallelujah.